Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the first trade-related executive order signed by President Joe Biden. Here he is. The federal government every year spends approximately $600 billion in government procurement to keep the country going safe and secure. And there's a law that's been in the books for almost a century now to make sure that that money was spent, taxpayers' dollars for procurement, is spent to support American jobs and American businesses. But the previous administration didn't take it seriously enough. Federal agencies waived the Buy American requirement without much pushback at all. Big corporations and special interests have long fought for loopholes to redirect American taxpayers' dollars to foreign companies for the products that are being being made. The result, tens of billions of American taxpayers' dollars supporting foreign jobs and foreign industries. In this episode, we're going to explain a little bit of the history of Buy America, what the Trump administration really did, and what the Biden administration is doing right now. We'll be hearing from a very special guest. Yeah, I'm Jean Heilman Greer. I was the procurement negotiator at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative for a decade. Jean left USTR at the end of the Obama administration's first term, after negotiating a lot of government procurement deals. She really knows this stuff. Before we get into the weeds of the policy, let's talk about what government procurement is. Basically, there's a bunch of stuff that governments are not in the business of doing themselves. The government needs to build roads, energy infrastructure, army bases need ovens, government office buildings need staplers and computers and things like that. So the government pays companies to provide it with lots and lots of goods and services. There are lots of different types of government procurement. There's federal, state, local, and there's a lot of it. According to a report by the Government Accountability Office, on one broad definition, there is $2.6 trillion of it a year. In this episode, we are going to focus on the federal kind, federal procurement. That is the kind that is obviously easiest for the federal government to control. And for nearly a century, the American government has been trying to exert control. It's been trying to reserve that money, mainly for Americans. Here's Gene. So in 1933, the Congress passed the Buy American Act. And they were doing that to provide jobs after, you know, in, in response to the, to the Depression. And they wanted to preserve procurement for U.S. firms. Back when they applied this Buy American Act of 1933, the American economy was in a very, very bad way. It was the Great Depression. The international economy was really not doing very well. There was protectionism. There were balance of payments crises. It was kind of the the Wild West out there. Everyone was just looking out for themselves. And so you have this act, uh, which gives a preference for American companies when bidding for contracts to sell directly to the federal government. That 1933 law is still in place. It's really important to say that it gives preferences for domestic products. It's, It's not a complete ban on foreign ones. The current rules are that products have to have at least 50% U.S. content in order to qualify as being American. 
And if you're a big business, then as long as you're not more than 6% more expensive than the next cheapest foreign option, you'll get the contract. Whereas for small businesses, you can be up to 12% more expensive than a foreign competitor and, and still win, win a bid. There are some exceptions. If a product just isn't available in the United States, then fine, you can import it. There is an, an official list of products that aren't available in the United States right now, and, and that includes canned pineapple, olive oil, platinum, tungsten, and of, of course, Cobra Venom. Personal protective equipment has actually recently been put on the list, of course, during the pandemic because there wasn't enough supply to, to satisfy American demand. But the guess here is that that's only going to be temporary. So you have this law. It's been on the books for nearly a century. And one of the reasons it stuck around is that it is an incredibly powerful idea politically, this idea that taxpayer funds are somehow special and that they should go into American hands. It's an idea that has bipartisan support in America. Voters love it. And surprise, surprise, it's also popular in other countries. Over the 20th century, other countries applied these things too. I guess probably by America isn't popular in other countries, though. It's probably the by other right, countries. Right, yeah. No, that, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification, Chad. Really helpful. Um, uh, okay. So clearly if everyone is doing this, though, then there's an opportunity to say, hey, we're both restricting our markets to our domestic suppliers, but why don't we help out our companies? And if you open your market to me, I'll open my market to you. This is an opportunity for an international trade deal. And after the Second World War, the U.S. government was interested in, in opening up its government procurement market. Here's Gene. The first time government procurement came up in the, in the international trade regime was when they were negotiating the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade after World War II. And the U.S. at that point wanted to treat government procurement like any other trade rule and just cover it. Um, other countries said, no, they didn't want to open up their bi-local policies or, or, or get rid of their bi-local policies. So that didn't go very well. And it took until the, the 1960s and 1970s for them to basically say, okay, guys, let's, let's try this again. And so they did. And they did manage to get a deal in 1981 that opens up procurement markets a little bit. And later, they, they managed to agree on opening up even more. And that gets us to today's deal, which is called the Government Procurement Agreement, or the GPA. The thing to know is that you have the Buy American Act of 1933, but there's another law, another American law, which essentially implements all of these trade preferences as eventually part of the GPA. So in 1979, you have the Trade Agreements Act, and that essentially allows the president to override the Buy American Act. That legislation says for big contracts and for these types of direct federal procurement, you have to treat products from these other countries, these other member countries, just like they are American. If you've got a contract over $182,000, then say a European company selling products to the American government from Europe, that has to be treated essentially the same as an American company selling products from the US. And what's more, if you're not a member of the GPA or one of the other trade deals where, where the US has agreed similar rules, you can't even bid. You're not allowed to export products to the US. 
for the purposes of, of direct federal procurement. If, say, Chinese companies can't sell directly from China to the U.S. government, then the idea of this is they're likely to be upset. And that's going to create incentives for them to want to push the Chinese government to join the GPA. Now, of the products covered, the $182,000 threshold means that the GPA will cover a lot of the value of procurement, but it does have its limits. And it certainly doesn't cover all procurement by any means. There are certain products and, and even states that are left out. And over time, it's been pretty hard for American negotiators to try to expand coverage. And that's partly because there just hasn't been that much appetite within the United States to try to expand it. Government procurement is just one area where the U.S. has a pretty defensive position. Here's Jean. The, the U.S. overall doesn't have a lot of flexibility. And this has been a continuing bone of contention in negotiations, you know, particularly with the European Union and other GPA parties. You know, we open a lot of procurement, about 85 federal agencies, 37 states, federal utilities, and a few other entities. Uh, but, you know, so much of the other procurement that we could offer is subject to Buy American domestic preference requirements so the U.S. administration does not have the flexibility of, of putting those on the table. You know, one of the biggest areas in which other countries have just been so unhappy with the U.S. is our small business set-asides. You know, by law, the U.S. sets, sets aside almost a quarter of its procurement, federal procurement by dollars, for small businesses in the U.S. And, you know, other countries have just continuously sought the U.S.'s removal of those or they want access to them. And, you know, Congress has said, you shall not waive this, these set-asides. You cannot open these to foreign markets. So to be able to open them to other markets, you'd have to persuade the Congress, you know, with small businesses in every single district, that these set-asides should be withdrawn. It seems that American companies are okay with the access they have abroad. And that kills the energy to open up foreign markets even further. Yes, but first, what you'd have to have is you'd have to have some you know, strong business interests or U.S. interests to do so. And that's always been an issue because, you know, U.S. firms, you know, the major firms have interest in foreign markets. Um, and they're basically satisfied with what they have. So for, to say to them, you know, what do you want to gain that would be worth it for us to go to Congress and say, can you make these changes? It's just never been there. There's just never been enough reason to say... You know, or not, we don't have enough arguments to say we should open this up. The debate now is not whether the U.S. should be more open. It's really whether the U.S. should be more closed. These deals that the American negotiators had agreed, to some people, they're international commitments. To others, they're big, giant loopholes. I think that one thing that can often get lost in this debate is is the numbers, is the magnitudes. And again, that's difficult because the data in this area is really ropey. There are a bazillion different definitions. And it's just hard to know how open exactly America is. Um, but let's try, right? Let's try and work out how how much government procurement is served by imports right now. That report that I mentioned earlier by the GAO, that included an estimate of the, the share of federal contracts served by companies headquartered or, or based abroad. And they found that 
it's really not very much. It's only around 4% of, of federal spending that they measured. And a lot of that was the Department of Defense buying stuff that it needs when it's operating overseas, like fuel in the Middle East or, or whatever. That kind of spending is not subject to the Buy American Act. But I guess the concern there is that actually the U.S. government might be buying from companies based in the U.S., but those companies are importing inputs from overseas, and that is that is being used. So you might have a company based in America that's importing European steel to, to build something. On that measure, when you try to estimate the value of inputs, around 8 to 9% of government procurement spending goes on imported inputs. Now, that's a lower share than for the economy at large, but it but it's not nothing. Uh, and, and given how much procurement the U.S. government does, it means that there is a lot of cash at stake. Okay, but let's move on to talk about policy changes. The Trump administration was, was pretty keen on the concept of Buy America, and they did at least 10 executive orders on, this, on the topic. A lot of those don't seem to have had much effect. One even called for a report that doesn't seem to have ever been published. But they did push through a change to the rules of the Buy American Act. Before, something had to have 50% U.S. content to count as American, and they raised that threshold from 50 to 55% for most products and to 95% for iron and steel. They also raised the, the price preferences. For big businesses, it used to be that American companies could only be 6% more expensive than a foreign bid to, to win the contract, but now American bidders can be 20% more expensive. And for small businesses, that cost cut up has gone up from 12 to 30% now. Now, remember, this shouldn't really affect contracts over $182,000. So there is reason to believe that it wouldn't have had much of an effect. But we may never find out. That change was due to go into effect on February 22nd. And then came President Joe Biden. I'll be signing an executive order in just a moment, tightening the existing Buy American policies and go further. We're setting clear directives and clear explanations. We're going to go to the core issue with a centralized, coordinated effort. The Biden executive order says that they'll raise the thresholds and price preferences, just like the, the Trump administration had wanted to, though it's not clear yet how much. In theory, the, the Biden administration has put a lot of the Trump administration's changes on hold. So I guess we'll have to, to wait and see whether they want to go further or not. The Biden executive order also does some things that are a little bit different to what the Trump administration wanted to do. In particular, they're looking at changing how the U.S. content is evaluated. Todd Tucker of the Roosevelt Institute did this flowchart explaining all the ways in which a product could count as American under the rules. And, and the critique is that essentially under the current law, you can import a lot of Chinese parts into America and you might not have to transform them very much for them to end up counting as American under the rules. So they might want to look into that, maybe toughen up how much something needs to be changed before it really counts as made in America. President Biden had more. Look, today, I'm creating a director of Made in America, 
at the White House Office of Management and Budget, who will oversee our all-of-government made-in-America initiative. That starts with stopping federal agencies from waiving buy-American Ameri buy requirements with impunity, as has been going on. If an agency wants to issue a waiver to say, we're not going to buy an American product as part of this project, we're going to buy a foreign product, they have to come to the White House and explain it to us. We asked Jean what she thought. Well, it's a lot more process. The Biden Made in America order adds services as an issue and looks at preferences uh, for services. So I think that's one element that was not in the, in the Trump orders. It's going to make it much more difficult for, for waivers to be issued because first you require the new Made in, Ameri Made in America officer to review the, every single proposed waiver. If the Made in America officer determines it should not be issued, then they have to inform the, the agency. And then if the agency disagrees, there's a, a way to work out the differences. But there's a whole process for that. Um, and then they have to publish the notices on a website. My sense is that, you know, it may become so difficult and so cumbersome that agencies will be just discouraged from trying to even issue proposed waivers. There was one other thing that they announced that was, was pretty interesting. When granting waivers, so, you know, you don't have to dissatisfy these rules, they said that the authorities should take into account whether imports were very cheap because they were being dumped or subsidized. Is there some kind of nefarious trade activity going on that could mean that actually it's not a level playing field, that this competition isn't in some ways fair? Now, obviously, everyone's seeing this in the context of China. And as far as I know, this is the first connection that's been made between these trade remedies and government procurement. I know that many are looking at this with great interest. So I suppose we'll see, we'll see what happens. Combining zeroing and the Buy America Act, two of my favorite things. There were some other things that President Biden didn't announce yet, but he said he wanted to do. One of those was to renegotiate international commitments so that American dollars can be spent on American products. And that could mean renegotiating the GPA. That sounds like renegotiating the GPA. Let's not be too hypothetical about it. <laughs> now, interestingly, the, the Trump administration did start trying to do this. In November of last year, in, in still in the midst of the pandemic, they proposed withdrawing some medical products from GPA coverage. So things like personal protective equipment, masks and gloves and, and ventilators, things like that. Things that the United States was suffering shortages of in, in 2020. And I guess their thinking is this could be used to help rebuild a domestic manufacturing base for, for those kinds of products. Now, other countries objected to this pretty strongly. The European Union, for one, did not seem happy. Yeah, that, their objection was in the way that the notification had happened in, in the process. They're upset that the U.S. had basically said, hey, guys, we're taking these products off. And they hadn't specified how much you know, how, how much that represented in terms of, you know, the significance of that. And on January 26th, the day after President Biden's executive order, they sent a little reminder notice to the Biden administration saying the following. 
The European Union would like to recall that its ability to properly exercise scrutiny of the proposed modification is seriously prejudiced by the lack of information as to the likely consequences of the proposed modification for the mutually agreed coverage. The European Union would like to stress that the United States needs to comply fully with Article 19.1b of the agreement and provide the missing description of the consequences of the proposed modification. The European Union therefore invites the United States to provide the missing information at the earliest opportunity and to consider the option of submitting a revised and complete notification in accordance with Article 19.1 of the agreement. I think it's probably pretty easy to predict that if the U.S. wants to, to withdraw products from the GPA, trading partners are going to basically want to do the same thing. Here's Gene. I mean, to withdraw products from, you know, from our trade agreement obligations, we have to be prepared to pay for them, if you will, or to compensate our trading partners because this will not be a, something that is, is, is free. Paying for them could mean here that maybe all those American financial services companies that help administer foreign government employee pensions, hey, watch out. Rebalancing could mean retaliation by stripping what you sell to them from the list of goods and services covered by the GPA. I guess we'll have to watch this space. While we do, I think it might be useful to step back and and go over the arguments for and against this kind of policy. What are the costs of, of shutting out foreign countries from your procurement? Now, in, in general, I think the arguments are often quite similar to the arguments surrounding tariffs. So let's start with the arguments in favor. I think one of the arguments now, and, and this was obviously the case in 1933, uh, is that when the economy isn't at full employment, you need to make sure that anything the government is is putting into the economy isn't going to leak abroad, right? And so essentially other countries could get to ride on the wave of America's fiscal stimulus, whereas actually their governments should be sharing the burden too. In that case, you might want to restrict American federal dollars for American workers. Another one in, in favor of, of Buy America would maybe be the, the classic infant industry argument. In some cases, you might need government intervention to support uh, a nascent industry to help it get off the ground, or, or maybe there's really big learning by, by doing as in the beginning as it's getting started. Now, government purchases are, are never going to be first best. The, the best policy there would be something like a subsidy, but maybe if for some reason direct subsidies aren't available, government procurement could help things get better. Another argument in in favor of Buy America, and we're now getting down the list, so maybe this is you know a third best argument, is you just want to promote manufacturing in general. Because for some reason, you think that manufacturing jobs are better than other jobs in the economy, and that's what you want your economy to be doing. Another argument going around is that politically, Biden just has to do this. This policy has bipartisan support. He promised to do it on the campaign trail. And if he doesn't, well, maybe another Donald Trump will come along. And, and you know what, folks? It really wasn't fun last time. Moving on, let, let's talk about the costs of uh, the Buy American sorts of provisions. So first is if you're not in a, a massive recession, then that aggregate demand argument for, for stimulus just, just isn't there, in which case 
the Buy America is is really just going to be shifting money around the economy. The, the U.S. government buys a very small proportion of American iron and steel output, and if they buy domestic steel instead of foreign steel, the other buyers in the private market are just going to say, "Fine, we'll just get ours from abroad." Then, a second one is the it's the same sort of argument as tariffs. What you're doing is you're just making things more expensive by cutting off foreign competition. And if domestic competition isn't robust, then you're just going to give taxpayers a really bad deal by basically forcing them to pay a higher price, pay more taxes to get the same stuff from the government. Thinking about risks that might be more relevant to today's situation in which in which the economy is, is really not doing very well, one of the risks, I think, is that it is very disruptive. If you're trying to get stimulus money into the economy very quickly, then may not be helpful to introduce a whole new layer of bureaucracy or new restrictions, particularly when you've got companies that are operating with global supply chains. If you suddenly say, oh, actually, you can't use that Canadian steel or or that European valve or or something, uh, that could slow down projects and it it could just add layers of complexity for not that much benefit. And even when the dust has settled, we're going to end up with a lot of bureaucracy that's going to generate a lot of fees for lawyers and a lot of irritation for a lot of other people. So let's maybe turn to the the evidence. And I think we should start by saying that the evidence, uh, looking at the impact of these policies in America, I think falls into the realms of uh, anecdata. And so we do have examples of states organizing their contracts to try to get around these requirements. Perhaps the most famous one is the Bay Bridge, which is the the bridge connecting San Francisco and Oakland. It was rebuilt after the the 1989 earthquake. And the way California structured the, the contracts was to make some stuff subject to buy America. And for that stuff, China would be excluded. That That wasn't a problem. But for other contracts in the project where they really, really needed cheap Chinese steel, They chose to use non-federal funds to pay for that. Caused quite a scandal at the time, at least in the Buy America world. Another anecdata point uh, is that I was told about delays in the uh, ARA money. This is the big stimulus that the Obama administration did. There were delays in that money getting out because there were Buy America restrictions on, on new water infrastructure. But there were some components that weren't made in the U.S., Now, thinking about broader evidence, not just the U.S., the OECD did do a study looking at bi-local requirements more broadly, and they found that local content requirements seemed to be associated with lower exports in other sectors. So that's evidence, perhaps, that that these things uh, impose costs on other bits of the economy. Now, I think often when governments impose these, they tend to look elsewhere and they think, oh dear, those idiots over there, they're just being protectionists and helping out their mates with this crony policy. But don't worry, we'll do it properly. We have the the innovative potential of, of our economy in mind. We are the masters of industrial policy. It's going to be great. Just, just to point out, that is a common feeling. And it's very, very difficult to assess whether that that's really true. The academic side of me recognizes that this is just an area that's difficult to get really good studies, and that's partly because the data here is just so terrible. But uh, that's actually another thing that the Biden executive order could potentially help with. 
it asks for reports from all of these agencies on what it is that, that they're buying. And so maybe that'll make it easier to evaluate these Buy America policies in the future so that uh, economists can come up with more precise estimates of their costs. Here is Jean's take. I mean, often I think Buy America has a good sound and it seems like a good position. And there's not a lot of evidence often to support whether it really works or not. There have been few, if any, studies to really look at the effects of Buy American requirements and to see how much they actually end up costing the, you know, the federal government. It's just hard to find data because I don't think there's probably a strong interest in figuring out what that, what the effects might be. And I think that is a good note on which to end Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Jean Heinlein-Greer, government procurement expert extraordinaire. Thanks also to Thomas Bart, the head of trade and agriculture at the delegation of the European Union to the United States, for being the voice of the European Union. And as always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Time for the song? Yeah. Mm-hmm.